Hey everyone, welcome back to Inking Out Legendarium, where Craig and I are joining forces to cover the Axe of Cain. Uh, I am your host today, Drew McCaffrey, and we are covering the first 11 chapters of Book 2, Blade of Taishal. Craig, welcome back. Yeah, I'm not talking to you. Uh, how, how you feeling? You, after... did this. you did this to me. You did this to me. <laughs> yeah. I'm not feeling good, Drew. No, not good. <laughs> So, yeah, welcome to probably the darkest book you'll ever read. <laughs> it sure as hell better be. <laughs> yeah. Uh, My word. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, yeah, we, we've covered basically 50% of the book now. Uh, I think chapter 11 takes us just about, yeah, it's 53% of the way through the Kindle. So, a little oh, over halfway God. through. Um, I'm on the downhill. Oh, we, we still have some more to get to, but you know what? Let's, <laughs> you, let's cross that fiery blood spattered bridge when we come to it. Yeah. Uh, so we've already talked about chapter zero and, and kind of what that did as a standalone story. You know, Drew, people might not know that we talked about chapter zero unless they mm. are subscribers on Patreon. So that is a very good point. Uh, normally I, I, uh, mentioned Patreon in the intro, but I forgot that today. It's uh, a yeah. lot, lot of book to talk about, so I get it. But yeah, people should definitely check out both Patreons. It'll be po- posted in both places or I should say yeah. either Patreon. You know what? Both do both or, or, or okay. both. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Don't be a miser. Check out both. Uh, <laughs> um, <clears throat> Anyway, so we've we've talked about chapter zero in in the sense of how it stands alone as a like a novelette or a novella, mm-hmm. and and it really is a, a complete story. It has a full character arc, but of course, it is just a prologue to Blade of Taishao. And now we've seen how it ties in. We've we've gotten to get a taste for better or for worse of many of the hints of foreshadowing in that things about the blind God and the social police, uh, the, the sort of life that Chris Hansen has chosen to live out on overworld. Uh, there are yeah. certain words that I'm going to almost demand that you not use uh, <laughs> during this episode. One of those would be taste. <laughs> <laughs> So there, I'm sure there will be others that come up, but you know, I I'm having a bit of a reaction, but, uh, anybody who is following along and has gotten to chapter 11 through chapter 11, I, I, I should say through chapter 11 knows why I'm having this reaction. I, I'm drew. I'm a little on the fence. We'll get there. We'll, we'll get there, (laughs) but I'm not necessarily thrilled to have read this first half of the book. Uh, I wasn't either the first time I read it. Um, this book, so I, I will say right now, full stop. Chapter eleven is the has the single worst scene I've ever read. Um, oh, like uh, yeah, how could it not be? Um, <clears throat> and thankfully, Stover doesn't go quite to those lengths ever again. Uh. And 
I, I don't know. I, I think I think this is a good time to talk about it too, though, because there's there's almost a sense of necessity in it because it's Tan Elkoth. It's this guy who has become a god and is so self-assured, is so certain that he is, if not currently omnipotent, about to become omnipotent. Right. And he needs to be torn down in the most brutal way possible. Hmm. And, and in turn shaped into or reshaped into an, a true antagonist for Kane again, where in the first half of this book, he's this like really complicated, uh, companion for Kane. They're almost friends, even as he's working against Kane in the background. And Kane is actively working to thwart Tanakos desires to get back to, overworld right but it's it's kind of the difference between an enemy and a nemesis right your nemesis is often something somebody that you have a lot of respect for and almost friendship with sometimes as you say so i'm gonna go with nemesis that's that's good i i like that uh because i think the the, milecoth was a great character in heroes die i think he's at his best in the first half of this book those scenes with Kane where they're debating, they have such an understanding of each other Mm. and they're both unaware of themselves in those scenes, you know? And so we, we build up Tanelkoth to be this, this certain kind of character and we get almost comfortable with him. And then Stover knows if this is going to be effective in the second half of the book, I have to really tear it all down. Now, did he have to go into such graphic description? Okay. So should we back up and just mention what we're talking about for what, if you've read the book, you know what we're talking about. If you haven't read the book, there are three scenes uh, in the first half of Blade of Tyshell, in which we have a character, two of two of them involve Arturo Kohlberg, and the other one involves a reanimated Baron, uh, yeah. Baron's corpse, right? And, and so it's yeah. like yeah, it's kind of like half Baron and mostly a well part Baron, An outside and power, a demon. a demon possessing right. his body, and they are <laughs> not just violent but like sexually depraved to a degree that is, I, I don't know that I've been this offended by a character in a book ever. Um, and it's so, so the scene we're talking about in chapter 11. So we've already had a couple of things. Um, yeah. Where, uh, I'll use the French word. Um, when, Arturo Kohlberg, he's been busted down to a laborer and then he gets upcast uh, kind of on a dime back to his administrator position, uh, as I understand it. And uh, that moment, upon that moment, he orders the soapies, the, uh, the social police to 
hold down the woman who has terrorized him in his like cubicle job for a yeah. long time and he violates her shall we say so we'll use the french word today yeah. uh so that's the first one and then you have baron's reanimated corpse but then chapter 11 it's it felt to me uh, we'll see how the book ends i i do trust stover um you know well based on some past experience <laughs> but <laughs> chapter 11 definitely feels like jumping the shark where Kohlberg isn't just um he's not just a rapist but he is he's so demonically depraved that it feels like i said it's, it's like jumping the shark it felt cartoonish um it felt way way over the top not believable in the slightest um as of this moment um and so, so that it, it, okay. it felt like I said, I'm waiting for the end of the book. We'll see how it goes. But right now I've stopped at the end of chapter 11 and chapter 11 feels so wildly unnecessary, uh, in its, <laughs> in its detail that I am a little bit like, uh, I, I don't, I don't know that I'm glad that I read this. Is that fair? I think it is fair. Um, <clears throat> I mean, when I go back to my first reading of it, I, I had to put the book down for a while in the middle of it. Uh, and, and like I told Lauren, I was like, I need to let my soul heal. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then when we covered it the first time with Rob and Pat on Inking Out Loud, I made a choice to say, all right, we're going to read half of Blade of Taishal, record an episode on it, and then we're going to take some time off and we're going to read Skyward by Brandon Sanderson. <laughs> <laughs> what is, uh, Alex, what is the opposite of Blade of Taishal? Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, a feel-good Sanderson YA uh, fighter pilot story. <laughs> right. Um, you know, and then, and then we returned and we finished Kane. But, so... I want to dig into a couple of things that you said here. Uh, first off, like, so you felt that this, this chapter was like such a, a, an insane leap in terms of content and violence uh, over what had yes. previously occurred. Yes. There there's the content, there's the, the sexual content, the violence, the, all of that kind of shocking stuff um, to quote unquote, see on the page, that is, that is difficult. And that is, it definitely escalates not just in chapter 11, but, uh, yeah. in, you know, the kind of the last half of this section, right? Yes. So, so there, there is that, but what troubles me, <laughs> that troubles me plenty on its own terms, <laughs> but I, I should also mention that it feels wrong literarily there's a word for you um it feels like kohlberg got here i know not how um okay. he was he was always uh he was always kind of slimy and you know uh, this this kind of unctuous little pale pudgy grody old man right so he was always he was always distasteful as a character which is where you wanted him to be but he went from distasteful to like cannibalistic um like i said demonic uh yes. rapist so quick um and i i didn't have as a reader i felt like i didn't have the connective tissue between point a and point b to quite 
buy it. It's the way, you know, for Wheel of Time fans, it's the way people talk about Nynaeve and Lan, um, which after my recent reread of Eye of the World, I have a lot less problem with. But, you know, I, I remember the first time I read it, I was like, wait, where did that come from? Uh, this this romance is kind of out of nowhere. That's kind of how I feel about Kohlberg. It's like, is he acting this way because it makes sense for his character or because you need someone to act this way um, and be this awful? And so, uh, again, it's the first half of the book. We'll see how it goes. I know Stover is amazing, uh, but this, as of right now, this, I'm, I'm just going, I, I don't buy it. Not only do I not like it, but I don't buy it. So... This is the second thing I was going to bring up. Uh, it's interesting how differently you read this from me. When Kohlberg, we get this first Kohlberg point of view when he's at his job and and right. his petty middle manager is being awful to him. And yeah, excuse me. And then he gets a message from the board of governors. And there's a progress bar on the screen. <laughs> that was a great scene. And it's so 90s. <laughs> it's, it's like watching an old movie where, uh, yeah. uh, you know, like like hackers or something where it's like, this is what we thought technology <laughs> was going to be back in the 90s. The progress bar. So I'm going to read this. The progress bar filled and vanished. For an instant, the screen flashed pure white as though its crystals were breaking down. The flash hurt hurt his face, his temples, hurt his ears, hurt like it had reached inside his skull and squeezed his eyeballs together. Kohlberg gasped, for from the pain blossomed a vision, unfolding as though it downloaded directly into his brain. He saw himself recasted as an administrator, returned to the arms of the studio in triumph, carried through the iron gates on the shoulders of cheering undercasts. Flash, not only recasted, but upcasted, businessman Kohlberg, at the podium in One World Center in New York, accepting the studio presidency from Westfield Turner. Flash, leisureman Kohlberg, retiring from the studio, etc., etc. And that was when he knew this was more than a vision; it was an offer, and it was a test. So, you—it seems like you read this in a literal way where this is the board of governors offering him a potential future. And he says, yes, I, I will select service instead of self. And of course, as he's selecting service, he's choosing self. Right. Because this is all a selfish desire. And he right. immediately, uh, you know, immediately chooses the most selfish thing possible and that is turning around, having the social police hold the woman down, and uh, and and then he, as and you violating said, violating her, violates her. And I I think this is where like, because it's not just that he sexually violates her, but he does begin cannibalizing the woman in this scene. Yeah, it's uh, real rough. Um, it, and and so I don't I don't even know if you want to know this. Um, when Tanelkoff goes down in chapter 11 and sees Kohlberg for the first time, that's the yeah. same woman. Oh my gosh. He's kept her alive the whole time. Oh my gosh. Yeah. That's awful. Yeah. Um, that's, but that's... so it, 
what what it comes to for me in this scene is that this transformation that happens in him goes from like the selfish desires of I want to be rich and powerful and retire in a life of luxury to I am now a depraved animal. And what I think is happening, because it's not explicit, (laughs) but it is (laughs) Kohlberg has become an avatar of the blind God in this moment. There is magic happening on earth, Mm. not just. And that's why he has this, like the utter trust because the board of governors is also an extension of the blind God. They're the faceless. You never see them. It's just a blank screen. Mm. And Kohlberg is the hand of the blind God now. Okay. Okay. And so we have this theme established from the very beginning about what the blind God is and it uses indiscriminately. Uh, Okay. So perhaps my understanding will expand uh, later as we go through the book and the series, but the blind God, do we, do we, should we talk about Kohlberg more or do we talk about the blind God or in your mind? Are they I, one in the I think, I think they go hand in hand and we can talk about the blind God as like an idea and an entity in and of itself yeah. exclusive of Kohlberg, because this was something I, I was really excited to talk to you about giving your love of Tolkien okay, and the way I the blind explained. God and the philosophy of this aspect of humanity is explored in this book reminds me a lot of the way Tolkien frames industry and uh, in specific, like with uh, Saruman. Right. And They're definitely, oh, and Sauron himself. Yeah. And, a and it's a despoiling of innocence, a despoiling of nature. Right. And we're just seeing it in a much more graphic, brutal presentation in this book Mm. than we did in but but like i think of the imagery of you know they're carving out the mountain sides of overworld and they're poisoning the rivers and it reminded me a lot of isengard yeah it's um it i definitely had that thought as well as i was going through it um it reminds me of the way uh jean-jacques rousseau would talk about uh well he never used this phrase i don't think but the concept of the noble savage that um, oh. we we all came from this Edenic existence, you know, far back in the reaches of time. And if only we could reconnect with our true primal, to use a word from this, book, uh, our, our true yeah. primal natural selves, then we would be happy. Then we would be fulfilled. It's the natural that is um, that is correct and right and loving and, you know, full and we humans come along with our, you know, stupid little human nature and we screw it all up by using, as you say, uh, yeah. the, the blind God comes along. And, um, and so, yeah, I, I had uh, a lot of these thoughts as I'm going through. I, in fact, I thought the, um, the invisible God as a name for this concept or what the blind God, sorry, the, the blind, blind God, God yeah. reminded me of Adam Smith's uh, invisible hand when he talks about market forces, um, the, the invisible hand of the market moves and, and shapes yes. the way that, uh, that society uh, consumes and produces and interacts. Um, and so, 
I, but I, <laughs> I'm still not sure where we're going with all this because, because it, this section of the book, the, the, these concepts that Stover is bringing up, they could have been written by fricking like Bernie Sanders or something, right? Um, it's a, it's a, a critique that I'm very familiar with from the far left saying, Hey, you know, why, why do we need 25 brands of deodorant? You know, like uh, we have yeah, this yeah. like rapacious desire to use and to, to create and to abuse basically, uh, to use up maybe would be the right phrase. Um, and, it, but you, you take that and you compare it uh to the kind of libertarianish stuff from the first book uh and yep. from the beginning of this book and you're like wait a minute where is this all going i have no idea <laughs> i i really don't um but I, so it's, it's a concept so, I, again i i as of right now i don't really buy it i i don't buy this that Stover's heart is in it <laughs> when it comes to like the the blind god concept and stuff but I, I'm yeah. not sure yet and that was going to be my next question is like uh, seeing it compared because this is mostly focused on earth like obviously the right. touch of the blind god is has reached overworld but a lot of this philosophical discussion is going on with the earth scenes the major philosophy we're dealing with in the overworld scenes is Cainism this right. but we uh, have no uh, definition of that there, there's uh, no all we know is like at least in the one scene with tommy uh you know where there's the meeting of the canists we see this like overriding idea of what do you want and that, what are you willing to do to get it that and is that's where the heavily libertarian idea comes in right where it's this like trenchantly individualist uh, mm -hmm. attitude. But we also see through this scene, like you said, it's a really good scene because it has in a short space layers, this individualist idea doesn't work for them because immediately one of them breaks and they're all rounded up and killed, Right, you know? And like it's oh it's that it's the, that scene is if i can just riff on that for a moment this is yeah um if you don't mind me getting a, a little bit uh, philosophical and pissing off uh, a, a good chunk of our listeners that's well look this this book is a little bit philosophical and pissing off its readers so yeah well there is that but the <laughs> this is it's the ultimate problem with libertarianism taken to its logical extreme where mm. it it is ultimately it's completely individualistic um there is no room again taken to its logical logical extreme right. i know that most libertarians don't think and feel this way or act this way but it, it's it's completely individualistic there is no room for community for groups for uh, barely room for family right <laughs> um it's all about as as well as you say as stover says what do you want and what are you willing to do to get it but then you run into the problem of you can't you can't affect change effect change you uh mm -hmm. you can't do anything without other people 
you require a community. We are hardwired for community, first of all, but also if we want change, if we want to um, upset the order of how things work right now, you can't do that by yourself. It requires a group, a right. community. And so it's um, so it, it's a great scene in that because as you say, one person folds uh, and, and you have this group of individualists <laughs> Just, just trying, a great, which is a great phrase, yeah, a group exactly. of individualists who are, you know, they, they think, oh, well, we all believe the same thing. So I guess we're a group now. Like, oh, wait a minute. Um, and one person folds and the whole group goes down. It's like, yeah, that's that's kind of how the world works. Remember, you know, mm -hmm. I, I, I love that bit. But that being said, I'm making fun of those folks a little bit, but it is a great scene uh, there, there's an earlier scene when um what what's the elf's name um talking to tommy uh delian 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 yeah. is talking to tommy and tommy is asking him what do you want and delian is struggling mightily he never really comes up with an answer for that and there's a bit where he says something about choice um it's Ooh. you, you have to make a choice. And this is such a difficult thing for Delian. Um, this, this idea of you have to make a choice. And that really hit me pretty hard because it's something that I'm really familiar with. This idea of um, like, you can't just go along. That's going to work often uh, and for a long time and, and in a lot of small ways, but you know, you're going to come to a fork in the road. And you're going to have to make a choice. And it's difficult for a lot of us to make a real choice. What do you want? And what are you willing to do to get it? Um, so that really hit hard. Uh, so great scene from a lot of different angles. And yeah. uh, I don't know, you go now. Well, so I, I thought it was interesting that you immediately latched onto the idea of taking philosophies to their extremes. And I think mm -hmm. that is a core meta philosophy of this book, right? This is a book of extremes. Um, and, and this, there are real world, like extra textual reasons for this. Uh, Matthew Stover was very ill during the writing of this book. I was going to say was, he was in a dark place. Yeah. He, he was in a very dark place. He was probably not supposed to live. He was not supposed to survive. And then he did. Um, and I think you see that shift when you read the third and fourth books in the series, that there's a, a, a marked tone uh, change to them. Uh, but the reality was he was in a dark place. He thought this was going to be his last book. He, he thought that, you know, this needs to be the big thing. It needs to carry all the weight. It needs to, drive home as well as I can, as thoroughly as I can, the point that I want to, to get across. And, uh, it suffers a little bit because of that. Uh, I've often called this book a flawed masterpiece. All it, masterpieces are right. Yeah. <laughs> Tanelkoth would think so. Uh, <laughs> it, and so, yeah, thematically, in a meta sense, very appropriate. But 
but the result here is that he's doing something really, really ambitious, but maybe not with as much subtlety as he might've been capable of that. He was driving some points home with a sledgehammer where, you know, it could have been, you know, tapping a needle in instead. And <laughs> right. And I, but I, I think it, it still, it still works. Like I, I, I can't say I love this book. I know there are a lot of Kane fans out there who love this book. There are a lot of people who say this is the best book he's ever written. I can't say that. Um, it's like, I get why people go there right. because this is a book of big ideas and big emotions for the positive and the negative. It's it, it feels larger than life in a sense that heroes die. Doesn't for instance, this is a more epic book than Heroes Die. Mm, which is, that's an interesting thing to say. Uh, the scale of this book is a lot bigger and not just in the, you know, 800 and whatever page size <laughs> of it. But, you know, it's we're big. looking at now instead of like one character being a proxy figure in an attack from one world to another and having intensely personal uh, conflicts. Now we're looking at like full scale invasion, right? Right. We're looking at a war between worlds. Yeah. Which, yeah, is, is very interesting. I, I, well, so we think of the title of the series, right? The acts of Cain. The first book was the act of violence. This book is the act of war. I see. Okay. I, and I didn't know that it, does that say, I, so I'm holding my, uh, non-trade paper or the sorry it's the trade it's not the uh the very nice nice looks yeah looking good not the uh mass market if there was one um it doesn't say that on here anywhere does it say I, it inside the book somewhere in the, you know like i don't know if it does in this one i know i've seen it somewhere it may have been i know in books three and four it does because it says active atonement part one and active atonement part two for those. Yeah. But it, I don't see it listed. The The one thing okay. on the cover, it does say there are no rules in war. Um, there's like a lot of the, the cover text is focused on war. Also, by the way, the back cover copy on this is damn good. The back cover, yeah. The oh the, oh, like, oh oh, I see. Okay. Yeah yeah. I'll I'll read that later. It, it's like that is that is some good good marketing writing right there, um, especially for a book that you could just pick this up and read this without having read Heroes Die. You think so? I do. I, um, I don't think so. I don't think I so. don't think nope. it would be as rich, but. I think there would be key things that you're missing, not just like, oh, you're, you're missing some of the shading or like there are moments, lines and characters like uh, it's the Baron scene. What <laughs> which sounds oh. like the Berenstein bears, the Baron scene would not be nearly as good without and I it, like not just nearly as good. It wouldn't work when Baron's reanimated corpse comes up out, you know, over the lip of the pit and, and all that, like we should 
bring up that. Yeah, we'll talk about that. Anyway, I I don't think it would work (laughs) without book one. So, so I, that's not to say that this, (laughs) like, that's not a problem with this book. When you have something that is book two, um, it's okay for it to be pretty dependent on book one. That's, that's not a complaint. I just disagree that it's a standalone. Okay. That's interesting. I, I, I mean, I'm, I'm not going to call it a standalone, but I do think that it can be read as a, anyway, but that's a, and that's something we'll talk about again uh, at the end of the series after we okay. finish the act of atonement. <laughs> right but uh, yeah, it's, I mean, there's just so much going on with this book in ways that just weren't there in heroes die heroes die is a much tighter book. Hmm. It's a really directed, streamlined. Like, yeah. there, here's the story. And there were there were moments in this one where I was like, "Why are we here? What, what what purpose does this particular and not not huge passages, but you know, you get a little point of view mm-hmm. here or there where I'm like, I this this doesn't hold much bearing. Maybe it does. It will eventually. uh, Yeah, right. But as you say, in Heroes Die, every moment is like, okay, I get why I'm here and what it's building towards. And that's why I think Heroes Die, just from from a writer's perspective, from a storyteller's perspective, Heroes Die is his best book. Hmm. Like that, that is a nearly flawless adventure story as far as I'm concerned. Uh, This one, the flaws are much more visible. But like I said, it, it, everything is magnified in this book. And I think one of the things we can talk about, uh, you know, you mentioned the Baron scene. One of the things I that's magnified is his prose. Like he really leans into the descriptive language again, for better or for worse. <laughs> but some of the lines in this book are just so good. I'll give you that for sure. Yeah. Like uh, so the the line that I am thinking of is when when Baron is reanimated there's this whole ritual um the blood sacrifice human sacrifice uh pentagrams and all, the whole thing right it's it's this kind of cliched yeah. uh reanimation ritual for this dead body um and it's you know, Kane is trying to figure out what's going on and who these people are and, and what's going to happen. And uh, this is before I can decide. And then there's a, a hard M dash right before I can decide. And then it just goes right into the next line. Like a maggot crawling from the mouth of a dead man, Baron's corpse climbs over the lip of the crater, you know, and then hard carriage return next scene. And holy crap. What a line. Like that is, yeah. uh, that is pretty strong stuff. And so like one of them that I highlighted early on, uh, I think this is from chapter one, actually, when Hari is, yeah, yeah, he's up late. He's thinking about drinking to ease his internal pain, you know? Yeah. And he says he was strong enough to survive any given day. But when he looked down the long, bleak tunnel of the rest of his life, he saw far too many nights like this one, sitting at his desk after 0300, staring into the cement gray certainty that today would be exactly like yesterday, tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow, creeping in its petty pace from day to day, world without end. Amen. Okay. 
<laughs> talk, so that's, uh, first of all, amazing writing. But can we also talk about the concept behind that? Because we need to talk about David the King. Oh, uh, yes, we do. Oh, oh. So, <laughs> Tan Elkoth, formerly, the artist formerly known as My Elkoth, <laughs> uh, is, is, so in the first book, we saw him sculpting with magic, trying to create his uh, artistic his masterpiece. great work. His great work. In this book, he's traded in, obviously, for, because <laughs> he has to, his magical tools for mundane ones. And he's now working with marble, and he's creating a statue of Cain, and he's calling it David the King, as I recall. Now, um, when it, so there, there's a scene. I, I want to say it's around chapter what seven or so. Uh, I can't remember precisely, but he notices he comes into the room and sees the statue and notices that the statue is not what he intended it to be. There are subtle differences in what he intended versus what actually came out uh, as he chiseled away at this marble. And he sees that this version of Cain is kind of busted down. He has, you know, heavy bags under his eyes. He's um, on the on the descent from middle age, he has passed not just the prime of his life, but the middle of his life. And he's, he's, you know, headed on the downslope. And then Kane sees that as well. When he, or sorry, Hari at this point, Hari shows up, sees the statue and sees immediately what Tanelkoth only noticed, you know, well into the sculpting process. He sees that this sculpture depicts exactly what you just read about in chapter one. This, you know, kind of giving up and saying, okay, well, my life, uh, my the interesting part of my life is effectively over. I'll just kind of go along until I die. And then there's this whole swashbuckling scene. There's an explosion, there's fire all around him, and he decides to save Tanelkoth. And in order to get him out of the room, he's got to use this statue as a counterweight to get them up to the rafters so they can escape <laughs> through a skylight. It's great. Like I said, a very Errol Flynn, right? And it's this, uh, it's this not too terribly subtle uh, symbolism. Of but it him. doesn't need to be subtle here. Oh, right, like, right. I'm not, uh, this, this is not is, a complaint. I'm just saying yeah, it's yeah. not subtle. <laughs> He throws the statue over the edge, <laughs> uses it as a counterweight, gets them both up to the skylight. The statue shatters on the ground below, and Kane is back, right? He's, I'm yep. back, baby. I'm on my adventure. He even says, like, I, I don't know if I, I can't remember the, the last time I was this happy. And so yep. much of his life has already crumbled around him. You know, his wife is gone, his daughter's been taken, uh, but he's on an adventure. He's Kane again. And it's that act that further seals his fate by he thinks that he's going to solve his problems by shattering this statue and becoming Cain, getting rid of those age lines and the baggy eyes and the tired look and going out on an adventure again. Um, but where it, so we, we might as well call this the acts of Job, right? <laughs> at, uh, at a certain point, 
he's he's halfway beaten down and then he decides that Kane is the only one who can fix it all but by becoming Kane he seals his own fate uh and it things get worse and worse and worse in that way it actually is quite subtle <laughs> you know it becomes yeah. that scene becomes more subtle as you read on right well and and why i love it so much is that it, this statue doesn't just have these layers of symbolism for Cain, but also for Tanelkoth. Right. Where, you know, like you said, Tanelkoth is at heart an artist. The first time we see Tanelkoth in a scene in Heroes Die, he is working on his art. And then here we find out again, he, he is such a compulsive artist that he can't stop. But he has this ego about it. Despite finding out in the first book that his art was flawed and that his art was being shaped by forces outside of his control. Hmm. He was trying to make that face look like himself. It was supposed to be, it, it was supposed to be uh, a, an expression of, of pride, right? Like uh, it, this, this thing that was supposed to be the ultimate expression of self in turn becomes a portrait of Cain, right? And then now in this book, he is trying to express Cain in a very cynical manner, Hari, in defeat. And it in turn becomes a self-portrait of Tanelkoth because he is the one on the descent here. He is the one who is losing while Cain, despite like, you know, he's captured, he's a, a tortured, he's a tool of Wraith, all of that. But he is Kane again. He's not this going to seed Harry Michelson. But Tanelkoth, the man who was once a god, has to learn that he is no longer a god. And when we have that one scene, uh, when he's regarding his statue, and he has this whole rumination about Hanta the Scythe and his love of art and all of that, and, and he's thinking in his typically grandiose, egotistic way. Tanelkoth was more than the sum of his experiences. He was the grand total sums that were the men who lived within his mind. For 15 years and more, he had lived by his absolute control of these self-created shades. What will could possibly have touched this sculpture other than his own? What will could have altered the curve of his David's stance? could have angled the line of his David's jaw down toward resignation and defeat. What will could possibly drive his mallet to his chisel without his consent, without even his awareness? Faintly, distantly, muffled in the depths of his apartment below, the annunciator on his desk screen chimed. And that's the end of the chapter. And that is the call from the Board of Governors, the call of the blind god. Okay. <laughs> let's talk because this gets to as you're reading that he's writing it as though there is some force you know is it god is it providence is it uh, you know whatever name you want to put on it, the mm -hmm. the universe uh, guiding tenelkoth's hand um maybe but let me pose another theory this ties in very directly to some of the other kind of philosophical things that we've been talking about, collectivism versus individualism and uh, all that stuff. 
and I think we talked about this a little bit with chapter zero, but I, I or maybe in Heroes Die, I can't quite remember. Um, yeah. But this, it's not, how, how, how do I want to say this? There is a fault line and it doesn't run between you and the other person who disagrees with your worldview. It runs through you. Yeah. As human beings are unique on Earth in that we have uh, both higher reasoning function and instinct. And those things are constantly, always at war with each other. Our subconscious versus our conscious, our id and ego and superego and all the you know, whatever labels you want to put on it. But it's something that we all deal with. Um, and so when Tanelkoth is saying, what force could have turned my hand without me being aware of it? The answer is you, you did it, but your, you know, maybe it was instinct, some, some sub routine or function within you decided that this is the way it was going to be. Even if your higher reasoning decided it, it wasn't, it's. I, again, I know we've talked about this in a previous episode, but this is where I feel like Stover is dwelling philosophically. And I'm excited to see if he comes down, if he does what Tommy tells him to do, which is make a choice, <laughs> you know, what, what's more important or yep. which, which side should we listen to more? Are we, is it about being natural and fitting in with nature or is it about uh serving ourselves is it about serving our community is it about progressing in some way you know what what is what is it that you want human yeah Decide. i mean i i think you're spot on in this analysis of the scene in the sense of the the essential conflict between humans and uh, and it's both. And this is why I think this is actually a pretty subtle bit of imagery here. He writes it, as you said, he presents this idea of, oh, there's an there's a force out there that is touching Mylkoth or Tanelkoth and turning his hand as he works on his art. But the blind god is also a metaphor. And it's a metaphor for inherent humanity and the struggles because we, the things we find out about the blind God early on are not all bad. The blind God is progress. The blind God gives us good things and bad things. The blind God is a God of paradox. And so the subtlety in this is that Tanelkoth has to learn through his art that he is still human. He is not a God. Hmm. And he has the same struggles as Cain, as any other human. Despite having these multitudes within him, those multitudes are also humans. If anything, he's a more fractured, a a, a magnification of humanity, but he is still inherently human. Right, right. And I love that. Artist, chisel thyself. (laughs) (laughs) We can't both drink at the same time, Drew. We, We both... We both yeah. <laughs> try to drink. Yeah, that's that's not how radio works, okay? Ah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, the so so we've talked about the philosophical arcs and the philosophical conflicts within Kane and Kohlberg and Mile uh, Tanelkoth. I keep calling him yeah. Mylekoth. I think that's I will acceptable. always call him Mylekoth. <laughs> it's so um, good. Yeah, uh, but what we haven't talked about yet 
that we only briefly mentioned in the uh, Chapter Zero episode are the end of chapter, again, going to the larger than life, the Mm. myth segments, as I call them. You know, there was in those days a man who had been a god. Yeah, anyway, so these these myth segments. uh, Right. There, there is the subtlety in, in the, the details of the scenes in this book. The myth segments are much more direct. I think, generally speaking, they're pretty easy to get a, a, a handle on who each of these figures is and, and what, what is going on. Right, the Crooked Knight, the former god, the part-time goddess. Yeah, the Dark Angel... Is yeah. the Dark Angel? Uh, Cain. Oh, oh, okay. So, wait, who's the Crooked Knight then? Uh, that is Delian. That is Chris Hansen. Oh, right, right. Okay, yeah. sorry. It's um, first time through. Okay, give me a break. Yeah, no, no, you're good. Uh, yeah, and so... Uh, did you feel satisfied by these? Like, were they too straightforward for you? Did they telegraph too much? Or did you feel it added flavor? No, I, I don't think so. I In the hands of another author, they might have been a little too on the nose. But I kept recalling that the first book is called Heroes Die. And none of our heroes technically die. I mean, we talked about this, but they all <laughs> die in yep. a way. And, you know, and so there's it's a lot like the way a lot of books treat prophecy which is the what you hear isn't ne- well with the Sedai, the truth you hear isn't necessarily the truth that they're they're speaking yeah whatever yeah um so so in that way no i wasn't uh, thrown off by that okay cuz i love these um again just on a prose level i think he writes some of his best stuff in these these brief little moments um because he gets to he gets to speak in this grandiose hmm. manner right like without it without it being annoying yeah <laughs> others had brought war against the god of dust and ashes many others more than can be counted on worlds beyond number among its enemies on this world had been jareth god slaughterer Ponchisel the Luckless, and Kiel Burkhart. Among its enemies on the other had been Frederick Nietzsche, John Brown, and Crazy Horse. Each had fallen to its patient, infinite hunger. It had killed them in its sleep. On the day the Dark Angel went forth to war, the man who had been a god took counsel with the acolytes of dust and ashes and persuaded them to wake it up. Like, that's so good. That's just... That's why people write fantasy right there. Like <laughs> there's um there there is a bit where as you as you asked is it too on the nose? Is it telegraphing too much? In the end, the common end for all who contend with gods, this particular man surrenders and dies. Yeah. Um so there are those moments where it's like, okay, well, the king of the gods took away man's possessions, et cetera, et cetera. But like, who is the king of the gods? I guess that's what we aren't sure about yet. So it's like, as soon as you have an inkling of who that is, you know that they're going to die. Well, uh, or but dude, in, in the way, may, maybe the way that heroes die, right? Uh, yeah. Um, 
Well, and, and I, that's such a fun thing because we have this, we have an expectation. We talked about it with the title of the first book and then we get to the end and most of the heroes dying in that book die metaphorical deaths, right? Right. And then here the book starts off uh, at the end of chapter zero uh, or maybe, maybe it wasn't chapter zero. Oh yeah. Uh, talking about the part-time goddess. And this was probably in the end, the real reason why she and her lover both had to die. And and you're like, <laughs> okay, but now we're halfway through the book and guess who's dead. <laughs> Yeah, I, I don't want to talk about that yet. Okay. I don't want to talk about it yet. I just, I just don't want to. Um, that was mean. Stover was mean. He was very mean with that scene. Uh, okay. The epigraphs. Can we call them epigraphs? Um, the, or is that only strictly about the start of a chapter? Yeah. So I, I don't know what the proper term is for this. Because it's like... Oh, at the at the beginning of a book or chapter intended to suggest its theme. Okay, fine. Uh, but like whatever we're calling, but these, it fits though because even though these take place at the end of a chapter, they are indicative of the themes and bent right. of the coming chapter. Um, I wonder if there's a if there's another word for it. Eh, oh well. Anyway, in these mythological excerpts or whatever we're calling them. It did make me think as I was going through this, that there is a way there, there is a best practice when it comes to reading this particular book, because they always come at the end of something incredibly intense. This book yeah. is 26 chapters. It's <laughs> in this uh, trade paperback. It's 750 pages or so. It's uh, it, this is a doorstopper. This is a very long book. Yeah. And so if I were suggesting that someone read this book, just a <laughs> dubious proposition at the moment, honestly. <laughs> but if I were suggesting that someone read this book, I would say, here's what you're going to do. There are 26 chapters. You're going to read one chapter a day. Well, 27, if you count chapter zero, you'll read a chapter a day. At the end of every chapter, there will be this epigraph for lack of a better word you know kind of coming between the chapters at the end of every chapter read that excerpt and then the next day read it again and then the following chapter and the next excerpt the next day you read that again you bookend chapter the chapter bookend yeah because the trouble that i'm coming to is on my first read through i don't remember all of these as well as maybe I should. I'm not absorbing them as well as I should because, yeah, I mean, we want to talk about the death of Palace Rill. You get to the, <laughs> the death of Palace Rill and you're just, you're shattered. You, it's He writes it uh, too well, frankly. <laughs> um, so you're shattered as a reader. You can't, can't cope with this. And then it's like, oh, here's this giant, clue this very subtle but uh but big clue to what's coming on next and you really need to understand this stuff and it's like i don't have room for this and this happens over and over and over again so yes bookend your reading with those 
and take it slow. You don't need to read this. You shouldn't read this in three days. I remember Drew, sorry, this is a bit of an aside. (laughs) I remember back in 2013, I watched Breaking Bad for the first time. So this was like at the tail end of Breaking Bad. And I watched all five seasons in a week and a half. And I was not, I was not well as a person. And you know, like you need to like, you need to dip in, dip out, (laughs) go back to your real life, et cetera, et cetera. This book is very much the same way. Do not binge this book. Don't do it. (laughs) If you're tempted to, don't do it. Look, chapter a day, chapter a day. I I cannot disagree with that. Uh, Every time I have read this book, it has been a long, drawn out process. I'm I'm in the middle of my third reading of Blade of Taishal. And there's a reason. There's a reason why I've read all the other books of the series five or six times. And this one (laughs) only twice before this. (laughs) Oh, uh, yeah. Uh, Yeah. Yeah, I think you're spot on. Like, this is a book that both in its content, in its subject matter, is heavy. Mm-hmm. But in, in like, how do I describe it? I, I mean, in its philosophy, in the, in the way the author clearly wants his audience to engage with the book, it demands consideration. And sure. not just like a, you This know. is not a beach read. No, (laughs) it's not a page turner. I mean, it can be. There are some scenes that are definite page turners. Oh, for sure. But but as a whole, this is something that wants you to slow down. uh, And and if you if you have feeling left in your soul, (laughs) you'll need to slow down. I mean, just that's a big fat if. Good, good lord! The end of chapter nine. Uh, before before the the myth at the end of it I have the strength to wonder dully what it might be he thinks he is but I don't have the strength to care about the answer right now I can only think of faith I can't even imagine what this has done to you my god faith I know you can't hear me but my god faith I'm sorry (laughs) i based on where this book has gone already i am absolutely terrified about what's going to happen to that six-year-old girl yeah Um, how she's going to be used and abused uh i i i I, i'm not (laughs) drew i'm not excited to read the second half of this book okay I'm going to, I don't, but I'm not excited about it. I don't blame you. Um, I, I will say, in my opinion, nothing that happens in the second half is as bad as chapter 11. Okay. Well, that's... Um, I, <laughs> you know what? If you had, had just... <laughs> if you just had me end on chapter 10, we would be having a very different discussion. And that's why every time I have somebody read this book, I make it at the end of chapter 11. <laughs> and... If we if we just if we had recorded from you know chapter eleven to the end of the book, then I would have uh, had so many other things to talk about. And but no, that's 
Oh God, chapter. But it's important. It really is important because (sighs) chapter eleven is not, in my opinion, and I think if you would ask Matthew Stover, he would agree. It is not the nadir of the book. It is not the low point in the whole arc of the story. Okay. But what chapter 11 is, is like, it's, it's just so shocking that it doesn't, it doesn't matter that the characters are going to like have to deal with more struggles than they have that they haven't necessarily reached rock bottom yet. Well, one character in particular, Kane. Um, Wait, has not reached rock bottom? Correct. Jesus. Well, I mean, think about where he is right now. He's He's got more to do before he can... I mean, like, right now he's, like, mind-controlled by Wraith and being tortured. And there's more to come with that relationship. And we still need sure. to talk about Wraith, too, because... Oh, boy. We've got so much to cover. We need to move, dude. I know, I know. This is why this book is just a, an undertaking. And why I wanted to talk about Chapter Zero separately, because we already spent 45 minutes on that. <laughs> but... I, I will say, can I can I interrupt what we're doing right now? Mm-hmm. And just... And thank... Really, earnestly, thank... Anybody who is listening at at this point, like if you are listening an hour plus into this episode, then you uh, apparently enjoy our shows. And so thank you very much for hanging with us and also for uh, like going through an episode like this after reading the first half (laughs) of Blade of Tyshell. So... Uh, hopefully this is cathartic and interesting to you, dear listener. Um, And, and thank you very much for listening because this is freaking bananas. I'm trying not to channel Rob here and get too profane, but yeah, I already did that once, but anyway, yeah, it's bananas. (laughs) It it is. Um, But I think you're right. I I think it is cathartic for a lot of people. Um, I think it's a reason why there's a phenomenon where, people want to talk about grimdark fantasy online because their books, like as difficult as they are to read their books that really like make you feel and you want to get that out. It's like watching horror movies and then talking about it with your friends. Yeah. 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 Um, oh. <laughs> so, so should we talk about palace real Shauna? Okay. Clayton? Uh, I want to get there before we do Wraith. Yeah, uh, I, I, this is the most important relationship in the first half of the book, I think. Uh, right. And I, boy, was I angry the first time I read this book. I liked Palace Rill in Heroes Die. I was genuinely happy for them that they were going to work on their relationship and figure out their marriage. Yeah. And. Okay. So let me, let me take the baton here and just say, I mentioned earlier that Stover was very mean. Mm -hmm. He was, he cruel to the reader. 
<laughs> I think is a fair way to put it. Um, okay. Sorry, go on. Uh, I, one brief interruption. So sure. there is a, a maxim, uh, a, a, an idea that is drilled into writers whenever they start taking actual structured writing classes and learning how to craft stories. Think of the worst thing you can do to your main character and do it. Mm. The first time I read this book, I turned to Lauren and I told her about that. And I was like, Stover didn't just do that. He did that. And then he said, what is the worst thing I can do to my readers? And I'm going to do that too. So we get the scene (laughs) with reanimated Baron who... Um, so the plan is to trap palace Rill. Uh, so she, she is, um, uh, one with, she, she's the part-time goddess. Mm-hmm. She's one with the, the river God, um, Shambaraya, Shambaraya, Shambaraya. And so anytime she's on overworld, she immediately becomes this, like connected to the river and, uh, and everything about it. So anything yeah. that, that, uh, any living thing, that uses the river in any way, basically she has a connection to it. Okay. So the idea is we're going to reanimate Baron's corpse because it's not alive. She cannot sense this creature. And so they're going to dump uh cane at the spring, the source of the river Shambaraya. And then she's going to come to rescue him. And when she does so, Baron is going to kill her. And it's one of those things you you've read plans like this in a million books and it doesn't work out. The heroes find some way to thwart the plan or they sense the trap or they just overcome the trap or whatever. In this case, no, she gets freaking killed. Okay. So, so Stover is mean in two ways. First of all, you don't get a heroic, uh, kind of gallant death. He cuts her in half from shoulder to the bottom of her rib cage, yeah. just slices her in half. Yeah. Um, and he, so you first get it from her perspective. Uh, she feels a, a flash of pain in her shoulder and then she's falling and she sees her other half with like freaking intestines spilling out or whatever. And she's, she's kind of calm about it. And she wants to, she wants to say something to Hari, you know, kind of like an, I love you and it's going to be okay or whatever. I, I can't remember exactly what it was. She wants to say something to him, but she, she doesn't have lungs anymore. Right. And then the last thing she sees is Baron's sword stabbing down through her head. It is awful, awful, awful. It is one of the worst deaths I've ever read. And then he flips perspective and puts you in Kane's head and you have to watch it all over again. Not just that, not just that before he flips perspectives in the midst of the customary Shanks family Sabbath breakfast. That's right. The daughter. Oh my gosh. Yeah. But, and here's the thing though, like you're talking about her death from her perspective and it is this just brutal, awful thing. Awful. But in the midst of this brutality, we have this line. 
And standing over her was a woman wearing her clothes, except it wasn't a woman, not all of one. It was only a torso with the left arm attached. Where the head and right arm should be was only a gaping wound the size of the whole world. And as the legs buckled and the headless one-armed torso twisted and crumpled toward the ground, the jet of heart's blood from the severed aorta fountained like Cabernet spraying from a spinning wine bottle, glittering in the rising sun, a rainbow that took her breath away with its beauty. She thought, that's me. That's my blood. Like, the juxtaposition of the brutality and violence with the prose, (laughs) the word choice, painting beauty in horror is like, (laughs) I've never read another author who can do it like this. I've read yeah. other authors who write a lot of violence. I none of them write beauty in the violence like this. And so, my follow-up question to that would be: Do we want an author to do that? Do we want to find the beauty in this kind of brutality? I'm I'm not sold on the concept. Um, he may be doing it as well as you say, and you know, and, and, and I'm with you on that. He's an incredible prose stylist. Um, but I, <laughs> it's kind of like uh, I have Ian Malcolm, who kind of leads into this book, whispering in my ear, saying, "Just because you could doesn't mean you should." <laughs> <laughs> I mean, and that that is something that will come down to readers' taste, um, right? It's I know for myself, I would prefer finding something to appreciate rather than just being repulsed. Sure. Um, I know there are plenty of readers who would just prefer not to have to deal with this at all. And they probably shouldn't read Grimdark. But at the same time, though, like there's there's value in reading more uh, like like darker thematic stories and being able to explore things that, you know, there, there are doors those kinds of stories open up that say a Brandon Sanderson book doesn't, you know? Right. And so it's finding what your, what your balance, what your avenue is into that. But yeah, so anyway, going back to the whole, the setup and how cruel he is, we get it from Shanna's point of view. Then we get it, uh, thankfully, thankfully, Faith. not from Faith's point of view. It's a more like withdrawn, um, almost a, I, I think it is from technically Avery Shanks's point of view. We get a couple of things like we get descriptions of her clenching her teeth until her ears rang. And then she oh, goes, right. his name. Bitter, bitter, almost impossibly bitter that in Avery Shank's own home, her own granddaughter had whispered his name. But it, it, it's it not in Faith's you... point of view. Thank goodness. Right. Yeah, that would be too much. It, it, real quick, before we get to Hari's point of view, we I do like that um, it shows you how out of touch Avery Shanks is. Oh, how God, yeah. Kind of, she has, she has no idea how 
people or the world works or anything like that. She's like, hey, I, I told my granddaughter not to, or like, I don't even know if she told her not to say her Oh, name, she did. But her her disbelief, how she said his name in my, my house. It's like, yeah, she's a freaking six-year-old girl and she misses her dad, okay? <laughs> so, I don't know. It's... Uh, what a what a despicable character oh and and even in fact as i'm reading back through this it is for sure from her point of view because the thing she focuses on you know it describes it sets the scene of this tranquil sabbath breakfast in the midst of it faith leaped upright from her chair pounded the polished mahogany tabletop with her tiny fists and then we get an aside ripping her antique ivory linen place setting as if that's important. Right. And shrieked as though rats gnawed her toes. Like, the the things that, from Avery's point of view, matter in this scene, in the midst of the horror, are like, you are, you're just a trash human being. You are a self-centered, shallow, materialistic, garbage person. If I were casting Avery Shanks, it's too late for this, but it would be the grandma, the evil grandma from uh, Kindergarten Cop. Did you ever watch that? <laughs> oh, way back. Way sure, back. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> I actually rewatched it a few months ago, maybe. And uh, it's a pretty fun movie. But uh, it kind of reminds me of that same kind of energy. Like, you know, yeah, I want the kid, but really it's for me. It's yeah. not for the kid. Oh yeah, like she cares deeply about faith, but only in in the terms of what faith means to her, not faith as her own human being. Right, exactly. Oh, and then we get to Hari. And then we get to Hari. Oh boy! Right up to right the up to bitter, the bitter, bloody end. I kept on thinking <sighs> that there must be some way out of this. There's not, Hari. There's not. <laughs> reader there's not no matthew stover hates you and he wants you to be scarred for life (laughs) it is i mean and he keeps going he keeps going this the sheer disbelief in the scene Oh. The, and the, the most heartbreaking, it, this is a common sentiment in literature and film and, and everywhere, really, in all art. Um, but it, I don't know, he's built it to such a point that it hits harder for me here when he says, um, that, let's see, I rage at her howling, mm-hmm. cursing, goading her with savage words, anything to get her up, to get her moving, to get her away. And so she stands and starts to turn and dies with my curses as her only farewell. Yep. That that uh that unliftable weight of regret that he's going to carry with him uh or attempt to carry with him forever. The last thing that she was heard. the last thing she heard was him screaming at her and cursing her out trying to get her moving. Yep. Awful. Yeah. Yeah, uh, awful. You, you know what? If this was a if, if this scene was a YouTube video, don't like. <laughs> Thumbs down. <laughs> Thumbs down. That's right. That's right. Well, obviously it's amazing, but thumbs down. Don't like. Ugh. 
Oh my gosh. And that I had, I had even forgotten. I'm, I'm like scrolling through on my Kindle here and the next sub chapter, the way that opens. Huh. What's that? Uh, I'm, going to have, I'm oh, not even going to read night. this out loud. Um, our listeners, if they haven't read the book, don't need to, they, they don't need my words. They, I don't want people to hear this from my mouth. Um, but it's, it's a chapter nine sub chapter 13. Oh, sub chapter 13. Oh, I, I apologize. I thought you meant the, yeah. oh gosh. Yeah, no, we're not going to read that. Out. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's, there's a whole lot of that stuff going on in this book. Yeah, there, there is, um, it's it's uh, undead barren things, uh, very unsettling, um, to put it lightly. Uh, although, <laughs> but hey, the one good thing that happens, undead okay. baron gets killed. They fill him with bullets. <laughs> right, that's that's true. Yeah, and I'm glad that they didn't like keep him around. Same, because I it it felt a little bit like. Heroes die. Redux. You know, hey, we're gonna yeah. bring back Ten Elkoth and and burn and and, and that is deliberate to an extent. Around. But in the roles Milekoth and Baron were playing in Heroes Die, we now have Kolberg and Wraith, and so doubling up on those would be unsatisfying from a narrative right. perspective. Should we end on Wraith? Let's talk about Wraith for a bit. But we've been going for a while already. Yeah. Uh, yeah. We have to talk about Wraith. Um, okay. How, so. Oh, okay. Okay. No, okay, go okay, ahead. Okay. Question. Um, how angry were you when he just like m- messes with Garrett and he's like, yeah, we're going to release super rabies, airborne super rabies into the world. Does he do that at the beginning? Yeah. After he okay. manipulates them into killing all the elves, Garrett runs to the uh, Transdean headquarters. Yeah. Let, let me let me just say, this is a long book, but even cutting it off halfway, this is a long book, <laughs> and I'm not talking about word count. This is a long journey. So there's stuff that happened in the first few chapters that I'm like, I I just I have no recollection of. Yeah, that because that's it's been chased out. Totally fair. Um, yeah, no, he goes uh, and he takes Garrett to the Transdean headquarters and they step into the Earth normal field in the computer center where magic doesn't work anymore. And Garrett's like, what are you doing? Are you like, are you insane? And he's like, look, we're tied together now. You can't get out of this. But I have heard you tell me about this, this thing. And he convinces Garrett to put in a requisition for vials of HRVP. Oh, this happened at the beginning of the book. Very near the start. Uh, okay. Yeah. Cause it's chapter two when we get our first yeah. great stuff. Um, yeah. I uh, honestly look, I'm, I'm not a bad reader. I'm a pretty attentive reader. But that, that is, that has been so chased from my mind. I just, I, I have no recollection of, that that's actually like I, I mean this just shows the differences in in readers if there's one thing i will take to my grave burned into my mind from this book it is hrvp right that is like rabies as a disease is scary as hell 
HRVP is fucking terrifying. Like I, I the the when Delian flashes, when Chris flashes on the infected elf, the infected primal in the village, and we get like his final days when we get these descriptions of what it does to people, when we see the, the pure horror in reaction, like this is a great example of show don't tell. Um, the, like we don't see really the full conversation of, of Delian telling all the nitty gritty details to Kirindal, but immediately she's like, all right, we're going to all go kill ourselves now. Yeah. Like that is because there's oh. what it, they they drill this into you as the chapters go on, but there's nothing quite as horrifying as not just death, not just a horrible death, but a death that comes after you've killed everyone that you love. Yep, yep, and oh, boy, does Stover drive home that point, and uh, again and again, yeah, and it's yeah. all tied into Wraith, like. The moment you meet Wraith, you're like, you know what? I can I can understand this guy. He has legit gripes with Kane. The the things that Kane did in Heroes Die tore his life apart. Yeah. And you're like, yeah, this this dude is justified in wanting like to take down Kane in return. I don't know. Yeah. I don't well. I don't know about justify. Justify well, it's understandable. Exactly. Yeah. It's the difference between a, an explanation and an excuse, right? Yeah. So uh, we have a good explanation. But then the things he does and the things we find out about Wraith, how he he essentially has compulsion if you're a wheel of time reader. He has the ability to just force people to do things or look at things from his perspective. And he uses this ability for uh, this was a pernicious. It's a charm. Yeah. This is what uh, this is what Palace Rill did to the King of Kant in the first book, uh, which I thought was a really good Chekhov's gun because he kind of you think that he's pulled it off the mantelpiece, but really he's just kind of shown it to you and what it is. Yeah. And now he pulls it off and says, "And here's what it can do." So he uh, uses the charm on Kane for sure, but he also has like right. something a little more. Um, I want to say esoteric, but that has a specific meaning in this series that this is not like we get these ideas uh, or these memories from him as a kid fantasizing about the, like the girl down the street right? and his fantasies become reality. Right. Oh, okay. That's right. I do remember that. Now. Yeah. And he can bend reality to his will. Yeah, like he he like lies in bed one morning fantasizing about the girl and imagines her getting dressed in this particular dress and putting her hair in a particular braid or whatever. And then he goes out and he walks by her family stall and she's wearing that dress and her hair is in that braid. And you're like, right. Ugh. Um, yeah. Yikes. Yeah. Uh, so like there's a you know whew. what? There's. There's a lot of mega yikes in this when it comes to like sexual fantasies and like disgusting acts. Uh, <laughs> uh, it, it, there's a lot of yikes going on in this book. And just in in tough. Stover's defense here, as opposed to some other grimdark authors who I will not name, 
he makes a clear distinction in which characters have these yikes sexual moments. Yeah. If if there's a character he wants you to even sort of consider rooting for, they're not going to have this stuff. It's it's the Wraith, the Kohlberg, the Bairn, the really explicitly evil people who are getting these moments. Like, you don't have Kane doing this, right? Right. There are other grimdark authors who are like, I want to make the most morally gray character possible, so I'm going to make him a sexual pervert, but also you need to root for him. And I'm like, uh, hard pass. Uh, <laughs> that's, a, that's a very dark gray you've got going on. Yeah, like... <laughs> So I do appreciate that at least like he he's pretty clear in his stance on uh, the the who, ethics who the good of, guys are. of uh, exploitative sexuality. <laughs> right. Still, that does not make it easier to read. No, it doesn't per se. It does not. So, <laughs> but Wraith. Yeah, I like. OK, so so uh, on, on top of Wraith, we see him mostly through Kane's lens, right? Like. We get a couple of his points of view early, but then when we really get into the meat of it, it starts with Kane on the train on Overworld, and he's like, my right. best friend is sitting across from me. The, okay. <laughs> Wanted to bring up this scene because this is legitimately one of my favorite things that Stover does. Mm. And and that is to... Uh, he... <laughs> He never lets you achieve <laughs> balance, like <laughs> equilibrium. He never lets you feel like you know what's going on. You as the reader, you you always, by the time you get to the end of every chapter, you know what's going on. Yep. And then not every time, but he'll often start the next chapter by saying, you have no idea what's going on. <laughs> Don't worry, I'll explain it to you. And you'll figure it out as we go, but no, you don't know what's going on. And so when he wakes up and he's like, "Oh yeah, it's my my best friend," and you're like, "What the? What is? This is? It takes him, you know, three or four pages before you finally go, "Oh, okay, all right, now I got it." But keeping you off balance in that way is, it's it's simultaneously maddening and infuriating, but it's also kind of gratifying because. It's it's a little bit different than being off balance in like a murder mystery or something where yeah. you're like, oh, I, oh, what what strings am I missing? You know that I need to pull to understand this story. Uh, that's satisfying in its own way, but this is more along the lines of, wait, do I understand people's motivations? Do I know what their history is? Do <laughs> I really understand them and what's going on? Um, and and he he can pull the rug out from under you constantly without it being infuriating, which, you know, to hell with you, Matthew Stover. How do you do that? I, I don't mm -hmm. understand, but, uh, but it's pretty cool. I think uh, it's a thing you can really only get away with in the early parts of a story. If you carry this through into the climax, that was halfway through. Yeah, but we're not at the climax of the book. <laughs> Fair. But like, so it, I, I've seen this where authors, especially authors who are trying to write like big epic series. Um, yeah. Uh, 
they will they will lean so far into the serialization of their books. They're like, this is all one big story and you're just getting a chunk of it mm-hmm. right now. That even when they're trying to build a, a standard story structure within this framework, they lean into the confusion and the the like keeping the reader off balance, and it makes the the last act of a book really unsatisfying because you never mm. feel any sort of like connection to the story. You never feel that that gratification of figuring something out and being like, oh, cool, that's what it was. Instead, right. you finish it, you're like, wait, what just happened? You know? Uh, and, I, yeah, okay, never mind. I'm, I, again, I'm going to not throw shade on specific authors, but this is an experience <laughs> I have had with other epic fantasy series. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. All right. Well, uh, other things about Wraith. What else do we want to talk about with Wraith? Oh man! I, I so the the best friend scene. Not only is there the confusion aspect of mm. it, but there's something so unsettling about like Kane's voice changes hard. Right. We're used to a really wry cynical sarcastic like hard bitten yeah and and then the way the scene starts doesn't even focus on wraith at all it's you know he's looking out the window yeah i press my face against the cool glass try to get a glimpse of the saddle blah 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 and then he's thinking back you know i've been here before the first time was this and once only about five years back back when we still thought I might someday walk again, riding in a sedan chair, not quite as nice as this one my best friend gave me. It's so offhand, but jarring, because you're like, wait, when does Kane ever say stuff like that? You know? Or have a best friend. Yeah. I mean, he even with the King of Kant in book one, it's like, yeah, I guess if I were to consider somebody my best friend, maybe, kind of, but whatever. I don't really care that much about it. Yeah, <laughs> so, and, and it goes... Earnestness is off-putting. And it goes through this idyllic memory. She took me way up Cutter Mountain to show me the tiny spring high on the western slope above the pass, you know, uh, but the image of Shanna walking beside my chair hurts too much to think about, and I force myself sideways into a different memory, and even that, like, it's like a a light, like a brush off. I can see the saddle in my head as clearly as I ever saw it with my eyes, a place of beauty so intense, blah, 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 blah. And he describes it all. And then the next chapter, or the next paragraph starts with, I put my fist against my mouth through the kerchief and cough. Like the four bearers of my sedan chair, I've got a kerchief tied against my face against the coal smoke and the furnace smut. And you're like, the, the, jarring changes in this combined with the weirdly soft cane monologue. Like it's, it's rare that we go, uh, and this is like three pages into chapter nine. It's rare. We go three pages of cane on overworld and heroes die without like a handful of F bombs, you know? (laughs) Right. And this is just so like, Oh, not just, not just overworld artificially artificially like tamped down yeah 
it, like like if this were if this were really Kane, he'd be cursing about the smoke and be like, man, this this fucking kerchief that I have to wear on my face and and you know there there's all this shit in the air and like blah blah blah. He wouldn't be using these sanitized terms. Right. And then again we get another like a warm hand squeezes my shoulder and the voice of my best friend murmurs in my ear. And you're like, what is going on? <laughs> <laughs> so it does one other thing. And it, uh, I, because when I got to this scene, I thought immediately of heroes die when he meets Kirindal for the first time. And oh. Kirindal is, is uh, perceiving his, what, what is it called? His shell. His shell. His aura, yeah. basically. You know, everybody has a color to their shell and you kind of read them based on their shell. And his was pure black. And she couldn't do anything with his shell. And it's this first sense that you get that Kane isn't just... He's not just different in his force of will or his skill with knives, or whatever. He's somehow actually different. Uh, and now we get that again, where, uh, what's his name? Wraith has tried to put a charm. Uh, he did put yeah. a charm. I shouldn't say tried. He put a charm on Kane, and it works. But in our book one experience with the King of Kant and Palace Rill, she says explicitly, it'll wear off in a few days. Yeah, it's this was immoral. I shouldn't have done it, but don't worry. It'll wear off in a few days and he'll be fine. And here we have a scene where he has a charm put on him and he's able to shake it in minutes. Um, it, it, so it's, I guess, a long-winded way of saying this is another indication that he is not just um, tough, but he is somehow in some way different from those around him which yes. to be clear to be clear i'm not sure how i feel about that i kind of like the idea of kane just being so f forcible you know in his personality in his will that he's able to overcome such things um so i'm not sure i love the idea that he's literally different like chemically biologically different but hey, here we are it's a possibility well here's the thing to consider go back to chapter zero when okay. chris duels kane with flow and he whips him up one side and down the other and he's got no problem doing that and there's nothing remarkable about hari's shell <laughs> sure so why why is it the way it is now why is it the way it is now that's it's I, this is not the first time this uh, question has occurred to me. Yeah. So. Um, well, uh, yeah, that's a that's a hard promise. Read and find out right there. Um, yeah, it is one of the cleverest things or tied into one of the cleverest things Matthew Stover does in this series. But. But we've been going for over an hour and a half. Well over. I think we should wrap up our conversation here. If you have any outstanding uh, nope. points, I don't want to talk about this anymore, Drew. You don't uh, want to talk about it anymore. We'll nope. talk about we'll talk about the second half in a little, you know, in a couple of weeks after you're done with uh, 
your adventures um, that I'm yep. quite uh, quite envious of. Uh, but we do have one more thing we have to cover. Okay. And that is the final draft. Yeah, well, right. Okay. No, thank goodness. <laughs> I, thought, I thought there was going to be like another scene we had to talk about. Okay. Yeah, I can do the final draft. What are you drinking? Uh, who's going first? Am I going first? Yeah, all you. Okay. Uh, so this this is a it's a tough book, Drew. Mm-hmm. This is what uh, this is what social scientists refer to as a two beer book. <laughs> so I've got two, got two for you. It's a okay. very very precise first, science. Yeah. Oh no, absolutely. It's uh, look, they, <laughs> they don't mess around. They know what they're doing. Oh, oh shit. Did you spill your beer? I did. Oh no. Your beer. oh, no. We're taking a break, ladies and gentlemen. Oh, no. Okay. <laughs> Final draft, take two. <laughs> Final draft. It's a it's two beer book, Drew. So, the first one I have, uh, this is actually a, a gift uh, brought from a friend of ours in Minnesota, a yeah. mutual friend of ours. Uh, so this comes from, let's see, Proudly Brewed in St. Paul, Minnesota from Summit Brewing. This is in honor of, it's it's uh, tangentially not exactly in honor of Palace Rill uh, because I know it's a spring and not a lake, but still, this is the Lake Crusher from Summit Brewing. Nice. Uh, it's a, a a series that they do. It's all, all Kolsch's differently flavored. It is. This is the mixed berry Lake Crusher from Summit Brewing. So that was a that's what I was drinking while we were recording. Uh, now I'm gonna. So what I was drinking oh. while we were recording was oh. Cabin Crusher from Summit Brewing Company, <laughs> the lime Kolsch. <laughs> <laughs> and that was the one that Very I nice. spilled. I was trying to to oh, show well, it to you, and uh, when my hand caught on the cord. <laughs> <laughs> But let me let me pour my other one, okay? This is going to be the actual final draft, the one that um, the one that fits a little too perfectly. This is um, it's a hazy IPA from Helper <laughs> Beer, my new my new obsession. It's actually Drew. I don't know if you knew this. Helper Beer is located in Helper, Utah. This is now the microbrewery in the smallest town in the U.S. Not that Helper is the smallest town, but it's the smallest town in the U.S. with a brewery. Uh, Helper, Utah, down in central Utah. And it's a friend of mine that runs it. He's amazing. He's a wizard. He's great. Uh, And he brews a hazy IPA. It's very good. I'm about to drink it. But this one's in honor of Kohlberg. Oh, boy. Maybe Baron as well. Because it's called Total Rise. Oh. Oh, no. No. I didn't say you were going to like it. (laughs) I just said it fit really well. It does. It is unfortunately appropriate. (laughs) Yep. Yep. (laughs) Oof. Oof. uh, And for, look, this is not going to be, this won't be relevant to 99% of people listening. But if you're a beer drinker and you have any possible opportunity, like if you're going to the national parks in Utah or something, <laughs> stop by Helper Beer. You won't be sorry. It's incredible. And the the beer is like a nine and a half out of ten. And the pizza 
oh, is an 11 so out of 10. Good. It's unreal. Yeah, that pizza was delicious. Oh. I went back again when I the last time I came out to visit you, and it was even better the second time. Oh. It's it's crazy good. Okay, all right, go ahead. Okay, so for my thematically appropriate beer, uh, this is an India Pale Ale from Anchorage Brewing Company. Uh, longtime listeners will be very familiar with this brewery. Uh, this is a ridiculous description. Um, I would like I'll need to ask Lauren what the hell this is. But it is fermented with thylo boosting yeast, and then double dry hopped with phantasm powder, nectaron hops, and motueka hops. And okay, it is all right. So this is straight fruit juice. It is super good. <laughs> like, <laughs> oh my gosh. Mm. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm curious actually if uh, it, so. This won't be as much for the Legendarium listeners, but for Inking Out Loud oh. listeners who uh, have been listening in on these final drafts for a long time, you know, raise your hand in the in the comments if you've had anything with Phantasm powder. Oh, yeah. Because it is, it's, uh, what, <laughs> is it you that describes it as a cheat code yes. for IPAs? It's a cheat code yeah, for IPAs. It, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it is, it's incredible. <laughs> yeah. But the crazy thing here, this is a session IPA. It's only 4%. Really? So, like, very light. Very light. Uh, Extra amusing, given the name. Okay. Uh, This is both a thematically appropriate thing for the whole first half of the book and specifically appropriate for Tanalkoth in Chapter 11. Oh, boy. It is called Descend. Jesus. <laughs> yeah. I don't think about chapter. Three. I've been seeing this beer. Uh, it, this showed up at our local bottle shop, like I don't know, two or three weeks ago. And every time we've gone in to like buy a beer for, because Lauren and I have been recording the the Senlin, the Books of Babel. I yeah. see this and I'm like, that's a great name for a beer. But in the Books of Babel, they're going up the tower, not down the tower. So it doesn't work. And then mm. and then when we were doing this one, I was like, oh, finally, I want to try it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I watched a movie once called Bone Tomahawk. Bone Tomahawk is a, kind of a Western horror. Uh, very slow, very deliberate. And then you get toward the end of the movie. And I'm not going to give anything away, don't worry. But if you've seen it, you know exactly what I'm building toward. Which is that Bone Tomahawk has, again, (laughs) what social science would refer to as that scene. Some movies, most movies don't have it, right? But some movies do. It's the scene that you will never forget. The imagery that is burned into your brain forever. And uh, Bone Tomahawk, Bone Tomahawk has that. I watched it, you know, five plus years ago, and I I will die remembering that scene from Bone Tomahawk. Chapter eleven from Blade of Taishal is that scene. Yeah, I, I I I will never forget reading chapter eleven, and I'm not necessarily thrilled about that. Uh, that's fair. <laughs> um, not a scene you really want to remember, but you will. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. All right, Drew. 
yeah, I think it's time to wrap this thing up. Um, this is not a regular numbered episode of Inking Out Loud, I don't think. But, you know, the normal deal. Check us out on Patreon. Check the Legendarium out on Patreon. Uh, we're, we're tossing these episodes back and forth for Kane. Uh, next episode will be on Craig's show. But if you want the whole thing in one feed, uh, it'll be available on both of our Patreon feeds. Um, and then, of course, we have the Chapter Zero exclusive episode. So take a look. Uh, Craig? Yeah, thelegendarium.com. That's where you'll find like the link to Patreon, the link to Discord, all that stuff. Um, and you know what? When I finally publish, uh, you know, this episode or maybe maybe the um, a, a different one from uh, from <laughs> Heroes Die, I'm going to put a warning on there. <laughs> Don't continue with this series unless you've got a, an exceptionally strong constitution, because yikes! And I mean this, yikes. Yeah, uh, it's you, you are not wrong. Um, yeah, and anytime I recommend this book or this series online, uh, I tend to put a, a little warning there. Um, one of the only things that I ever feel the need to be like, yeah, content warning right here. <laughs> so, yeah, no, absolutely. I'm not a huge fan of trigger warnings, but sometimes they just make sense. <laughs> <laughs> trigger warning mega yikes ahead and trigger warning second half of this book gets epic so tune in next week